morning, church family. So the party's almost over. The dog days of summer are swiftly coming to an end. Our picnics, our evening concerts at Blossom, backyard cookouts, golf, tennis, swimming pools, lakes, summer vacations, visits from family, visits to family, all the things we wait patiently for and pack into the few months in northeastern Ohio we call summer. There is always a little sadness that comes with the close of summer. It's over so fast. But even though the party of summer is closing, we know that the next season will bring its own joys and surprises, even though we resist the transition, don't we? And so it was with Jesus and the disciples in the gospel reading for today. The disciples have been together for some time now, witnessing the miracles of Jesus, listening to his preaching and teaching, being in the forefront of his public ministry. It had been an exciting time to be with him. There hadn't been any major problems aside from some differing responses to his ministry that were beginning to bubble up. It was what we might think of as the summer of his ministry, so exciting and convincing that Peter makes his confession to Jesus the first such declaration in response to a revelation from God that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You remember from last week, Who do people say that the Son of Man is, asks Jesus. And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession of faith reveals the true identity of Christ for the very first time, his divinity as the promise and the long-awaited Messiah. The prophesied fulfillment of God's providence of deliverance to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Do you know that we are all joined in the church by faith in Jesus Christ as Savior? The same faith expressed here by Peter. Some of you might know that David and I just got back from a wonderful trip to Europe with family, which ended in Rome. I had a chance to go into St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican, one of the world's largest churches. It was amazing and overwhelming to see a church whose dome could fit the Statue of Liberty. Started by a confession an empowerment by Jesus to Peter to preach. A simple question, who do you say that I am? Open the doors to the kingdom, first to the Jews and then to the Samaritans and finally to the Gentiles. A simple question, who do you say Jesus is? But then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. And why does he do this? Because they really don't get the whole thing. They haven't seen the whole picture yet. The picture that he wasn't a military commander wasn't the military commander people were expecting him to be, but he was a suffering servant. He knew they weren't prepared to preach to others without a full understanding of what was to come in his suffering and death and what their actual mission would be. He hadn't completed his earthly mission yet. Only then would they understand. And so this is where we pick up this week. The transition from the public ministry of Jesus to the prediction of his death for the first time. From the summer of preaching, teaching, and performing miracles to the winter of suffering and death. And this is not what the disciples wanted to hear. Even though he tried to explain to him, this is my purpose in coming, is to die. Unlike mostly the martyrs, their consequences were up because of their convictions throughout Jewish history. It was a very bitter pill for them to swallow. They didn't want to hear that rather be embraced, he would be rejected. Not crowned, but executed. Not powered by might, but weakened by affliction. 
Peter begins to rebuke him in verse 22. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And you know how Jesus responds? Get thee behind me, Satan. Not only was Peter's rebuking unthinkable in the Jewish master-disciple relationship, but Jesus comes back on Peter for trying to protect him by assuming the worldly view that Jesus could achieve greatness without dying. Jesus knew the path he was called to was suffering death on the cross, the ultimate example of obedience. He didn't need anyone to tempt him to think otherwise as Peter was doing. So in the next few verses, we get a teaching from Jesus of what we have to do to become disciples. What is the path we must walk? I think it is interesting to note that the Gospel of Matthew was the book that became the manual on discipleship for the Jews and the Gentiles. It became the catechist within the church throughout history, the collection of Jesus' earthly instructions to us. So what can we learn from these verses? Verse 24 says, to be a disciple, we first must deny ourselves. Deny. To counter or challenge ourselves to put God first. To restrain ourselves from gratification of desires is another definition. We become second. God takes first place in our hearts. But relinquishment isn't easy, and spiritual growth comes slowly, doesn't it? Putting ourselves aside to make room for the Spirit. Next, take up our cross. Jesus' cross was to provide salvation to the world and to wash away sins. Our cross isn't that heavy. Our cross is manageable if we are in the right relationship with the Lord. I don't know what your cross may be. Perhaps it's a difficult relationship. Maybe it's financial burdens, illness, sadness over the loss of a loved one, an unhealthy addiction that we need to overcome. Maybe it's the burden of having too much and not to know what to do with it all. But the message is to keep taking up the cross you are called to bear. And if you are right with the Lord, it will never be too much. And finally, follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to have a personal and intimate relationship with him. I didn't know that truth for a long time in my life. Nobody told me. Not my family. Not a friend. Not even the church I grew up in. But when I was in my late 20s, I had what would be called a spiritual awakening, an aha moment, if you will, where I began to understand that this thing is about a relationship with Jesus, not about going to church and performing like many of us have been programmed to do. I had to learn to experience believing by actually reading the Bible, by praying and learning to listen to God's voice. And, of course, I wanted it all right now. I needed to learn about compassion and the desire of his salvation for souls. I had to learn to trust, to take my next step of faith and know that it would be okay. I had to let God change me. Martin Luther said that a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. I wanted what I was offered to me because I knew it was good. I was forgiven of all my wrongdoings and was loved unconditionally. Who wouldn't want that? You might be saying, well, Jesus couldn't use me. He wouldn't want me. If you don't think so, listen to this letter that was written to Jesus, son of Joseph, from the Jordan Management Consultants. Some of you may have read this letter. I don't know. 
Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We not only run the results through our computer, but also arrange personal interviews for each of one of them with our psychologist, vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you will want to study each one of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance. This additional insight is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They don't have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. (laughs) James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both register high on the manic depressive scale. And one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of great ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places, highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your venture. Sincerely, the Jordan Management Company. The point is that Jesus didn't pick his disciples based on their worldly perfections. Nor does he choose us that way. He can see in us what no one else can see. He sees the end results of what we will become, not what we are in the beginning of our spiritual journey. He loves us so much that he chooses to adopt us into his own family. And then he sets us in places where we can grow into strong disciples. So where will he take us, you might ask? He might take us to find sick people who need someone to visit them and take care of them. He might take us to find people in prison who know that the Lord loves them. He might take us to where children are neglected or or abused and not given a chance to grow up. He will take us places where people don't think they need the Lord, or even us as church people for that matter. He's going to take us to the naked, the hungry, and the thirsty. And we will meet people who are not grateful, who mock us, and who dismiss us as being do-gooders. The good news is that we find true life on this uncomfortable road. There is a sweet reward for walking on this path. So verse 24 goes on to say that we must lose our life in order to find it, and that find real life, and that the conditions of our soul is more important than gaining the whole world. We must kneel down die to self before we can find true meaning and the fulfillment to life. We must be willing to put personal desires and life itself into God's hands. It means nothing that we can gain our own in our earthly lives 
to compare it to what we can gain with Christ. Christ, the creator, wants us to follow him instead of leading a life of total self-satisfaction, only to lose our souls in the end. There is nothing of enough value that it can be exchanged for your soul. No amount of money, power, or status can buy back a lost soul. We can live abundantly now and have eternal life as well. Let's take the next step. Let's recognize Jesus' work in our lives. Let's not miss it. And I'll close with this story about the well-known playwright Arthur Miller, who was sitting alone in a bar when he was approached by an especially well-dressed man who asked, Aren't you Arthur Miller? To which the author replied, Why, yes, I am. Don't you remember me, asked the man. Your face looks familiar, said Miller. Art, I'm your old buddy, Sam. We went to high school together. Miller still couldn't place the man. The man continued, Remember, we double-dated. What do you do now, Art? The man asked. The author replied, Well, I write. What do you write, asked the man. Well, plays, mostly plays. Would I know any? The man pressed. Well, perhaps you've heard of Death of a Salesman? The man's mouth fell open. His face drained of color. He stood speechless for a moment and cried out, Oh my gosh, you are the Arthur Miller. Do you recognize who Jesus really is? Do you see him at work in your life? If we want to be part of the party that lasts forever, we must deny, take up, and follow. May the Lord move us closer to his kingdom every day. Amen.